Informing America's farmers and ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Glad you're with us and letting us be part of your day. We appreciate it. Hope you're safe and well, taking all your precautions as we make our way, hopefully, day by day towards getting back to some sense of normalcy in our lives. Some, it seems like some days it's one step forward and a couple back, but the steps are being taken and hope you are well and dealing with all this. Here's what we're going to be talking about on our program today. USDA has announced some commodity purchases. They'll be buying $470 million in excess foods like milk, meat, and produce that have been going to waste as many farmers and producers have had to uh, throw out perishable goods and kill livestock because of supply chain disruptions. Meanwhile, the need is certainly there with the food banks and uh, uh, feeding institutions. So we're finally seeing some movement on that. And we'll talk with the CEO of the National Potato Council a little bit later on about the, the importance of this announcement and what it'll mean for potato growers. Also, we have some movement uh, on the biofuels uh, infrastructure grant program. We're going to be talking with Jeff Cooper president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association about that. How about infrastructure? How is COVID-19 impacting movement of goods uh, as far as on our rail system and uh, on rivers as well as on roads? We're going to talk with Mike Steenhook, executive director of the Soy Transportation Coalition, and also look at uh, some key infrastructure projects that are still on schedule to move forward. We'll be talking about that. And a lot of focus, again, on the relationship between the U.S. and China, and as pressure mounts, on China being to blame for the coronavirus spread for whatever reason or from whatever spot, uh, more focus being placed on that relationship. And what does that mean about China fulfilling the phase one trade deal and just trade in, in general between the two countries moving forward? We'll be talking with the senior vice president of the U.S.-China Business Council, Jake Parker, a little bit later in today's program. So it's going to be a busy, busy show. We are glad to start things off with Todd Neely from DTN. Todd, good to talk with you again. How are things going? I'm doing well, Mike. Thanks for having me. Uh, This uh, purchase program by USDA has been uh, long awaited and I know is much appreciated. It doesn't fix everything, but it's a step in the right direction. Yeah, I think so. You know, uh... You know, it's really it's really hard to get a handle and get your mind around what's really going on out there. I mean, we we hear so many stories, uh, hear reports of millions of hogs being put down. Um, you know, all this uh, food supply chain has been clogged up. I mean, it's just uh, it's an immense problem. You know, and I I think you're right. I think USDA making these purchases is probably something that's long overdue. It probably should have you know started a couple of months ago. The way things are looking now. Um, but at least it's coming when we, you know, we need it now. So let's get going on it. But uh, it'll be interesting to see how, um, you know, how everything works out in terms of meat packing plants and getting the, getting the system going in the right direction again. Uh, I think that, you know, as we see meat packing plants uh, really struggling to get things going, the virus. I, I do think that, uh, you know, it may, it may. Uh, you know, we may see some future purchase from USDA going forward. I, I don't think this is something uh, 
that's going to go away in, in the short term. And so I think uh, we're probably going to see a series of these uh, actions by the USDA going forward. The biofuels industry is still hoping for some direct assistance, but in the meantime, at least some movement on the uh, infrastructure program that hopefully will lead to the greater use of higher ethanol blends. Yeah, you know, it is uh, it is good news. Um, I, I do think, though, we're going to have to see gasoline demand pick up uh, for these grants and the, and the money that USDA is providing. It's about $100 million, and it's going to go towards uh, – higher blends of ethanol providing, you know, the funding for the infrastructure, which is something that's been needed for many years. Um, but we have to have, we have to have gasoline demand come back to even uh, make this kind of a thing make sense on the ground. Uh, you know, we were kind of anticipating this was on the way. USDA had talked about it for a while. Um, but at this point in time, I think we'll take any good news we can get. I do think that uh, E15 is showing some great promise in terms of being adopted in the market. Um, and I do think that you know this kind of a this kind of a move by USDA can certainly help that along. Although, uh, if you talk to people in the industry, they they want more beyond E15, and so um, at least it's a start. But I'd say we're uh, we're quite a few dollars away from really getting the infrastructure built out like it needs to be. It's a long-term help, but uh, those in the industry would say we have to get through the short term to be able to take advantage of the right. uh, improvements long term. So, yeah, that's why they still need some assistance. Meanwhile, the new Waters of the U.S. rule, we knew there would be court challenges to it, and we're starting to see that, aren't we? Yeah, you know, Mike, and it's interesting. Every time, uh, you know, in the last, you know, five or ten years, every time we have a rule like this come out, you always see it opposing sides filing filing lawsuits and uh and it's always you know complete opposite ends of the spectrum you know we've got agriculture groups uh, we've got a cattle group out of new mexico that's uh, that's sued on this water rule uh they're claiming that uh epa has not really fixed this whole question of tributaries and wetlands and all that and that uh, farmers are still going to be exposed to uh, to regulation on many of these uh many of these types of water bodies and then you see uh, environmental groups. We have a lawsuit uh, in South Carolina uh, claiming that uh, the rule doesn't go far enough. And so here we are again. This is basically mm-hmm. uh, where we were after the 2015 rule uh, was was finalized. Although I would say that uh, on that 2015 rule, there seemed to be quite a bit more consensus about uh, you know that this that that particular rule had had overstepped. Uh, you had environmental groups back then, uh, you know, defending it as well. But I. I think on this particular, this new rule, I think we're going to see quite a balance between, you know, both sides on this. And so, uh, again, I think this is going to take quite some time to play out, uh, as we saw with the 2015 rule. Um, But we're not seeing quite the outcry on this. To this point, we've only seen these two lawsuits in particular. And finally, Todd, in a normal year, whatever normal would be now, but usually if we had a year where, especially coming off last year, where the planting numbers are as good as they are this year, especially compared to last year, that'd be the number one thing we'd probably be talking about right now if it wasn't for all the things related to COVID-19. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we saw numbers yesterday. Uh, the corn crops halfway planted. Uh, you don't. You don't really. You're right. We're not hearing much about that. Uh, but that's terrific news. I mean, when you look across uh, the Midwest and the corn, bro- corn belt areas, we haven't seen 
uh, you know, the wide variety in, in weather patterns that we that we've seen several springs in a row where, you know, you get the heavy rains and you've got areas of the country where people can't get out and plant. Um, you know, we might see a little bit of that right now. In fact, I think the next seven days is supposed to be a little bit mm-hmm. wetter. Uh, but yeah, this is this is great news. I, I think we need to, to cling to this. Todd, good to talk with you. Take care. All right. Thanks very much. DTN reporter Todd Neely. Up next, we talk infrastructure with Mike Steenhook, executive director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. You're listening to AOA. This is a call for all farmers to come to the aid of their beans. Liberty Herbicide can now be applied on your Enlist E3 soybeans. Superior weed control, greater application flexibility, no known resistance in U.S. row crops. Liberty Herbicide battles tough weeds so your beans can live free and grow healthy. Talk to your BASF rep to learn more. Always read and follow label directions. Liberty is a registered trademark of BASF. Enlist E3 is a trademark of Dow AgroSciences. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, we keep hearing that uh, something may get done on infrastructure, a big package, but as we wait for that, we need an update on what's happening right now. How is COVID-19 impacting our infrastructure system in this country? Mike Steenhook, Executive Director of the Soy Transportation Coalition, joins us. Mike, thanks for being with us. What can you tell us? Are we seeing any impact of the crisis on infrastructure? Well, I mean, freight is still is, is still moving. Um, you, know, I, you know, the the problem so much isn't the connectivity with supply and demand. It's you know, frankly, the problem is demand and uh, having a consistent destination for that. And and uh, you know, clearly, COVID nineteen is having an impact on that. You know, you saw you know, with like containerized freight, this is freight moving in those steel boxes with the outset of it. All of a sudden there was, you didn't have product coming from China to the United States because of the problems over there. And now the problem has shifted to, you know, the United States. And so now we don't have this demand. So you're seeing a real imbalance throughout the supply chain. You know, overall the infrastructure is, is working relatively well, but it's just, um, it's 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 the demand side of the equation that's really imposing some problems. There is um, work going on. I know uh, some projects on for locks and dams that are on schedule still for this year, right? Yeah, you know, most notably on the Illinois River, and that's one of the key waterways, um, and one of the maritime highways that farmers and agriculture utilize. You know, we uh, we know, of course. Uh, on the outbound side with soybeans and corn and other grains, but also on the inbound side with fertilizer. It's, it's a really important maritime highway. And it, they, there are a number of locks and dams along that river that have been allowed to degrade considerably over the years. Some of the real poster childs of a underinvested um, capital asset uh, are along the Illinois river. So we and others have been advocating for years that they need to, to, to invest in that system and do some major rehabilitation, uh, if not some new construction. And we're pleased that that is actually going to occur. They're going to have five uh, of the eight um, locks and dams are going to be uh, upgraded this year. Um, 
you know, the challenge, of course, is you don't want you can't do that work too early in the year to interfere with spring rains and the kind of the turbulent conditions that that can provide. You don't want it to extend too late in the year because then you're you're really inconveniencing uh, agriculture during the peak harvest season. So what they're really endeavoring to do, the Army Corps of Engineers, is start this work and do it simultaneously, not having one lock after another. You're trying to do it all at one time having that work start in early July and trying to conclude in between late September and late October, it will be an inconvenience. The goal on something like this is try to moderate and minimize the inconvenience. Yeah, they have a relatively small window there. As you said, you got, uh, you got conditions in the spring, you got uh, increased volume in the fall. So those are, you got to work in between there. We're talking with Mike Steenhook, executive director of the soy transportation coalition, Mike with, with uh, driving down, with uh, we know what the, it's done with as far as demand for fuel, the impact there. That also means uh, you know less money coming in and fuel taxes as well. Much of which goes to help you know to fix, improve, repair uh, our roads. So what impact are we seeing there? Well, it really is. Every state Department of Transportation is struggling with this, and you know some states. Um, derive more of their funding from the fuel tax. Some states, they have a higher percentage of it in, say, registration fees um, or new taxes on new vehicle sales. But every single state uh, significantly relies on the fuel tax to fund their roads and bridges. So, you know, the problem is really twofold. Number one is you have this dramatic decrease in fuel tax revenue, but then the fact that it's been so unpredictable, uh, no one expected at the beginning of this calendar year that these states would experience, you know, 20%, 30%, 40% decrease in fuel tax revenue. It's, and so that's the real problem as well. So there you're, you're seeing these states that are going to have to curtail the amount of investment at the time when the construction season is ramping up. So it clearly is, is going to be a real you know, challenge moving forward. Um, I, one of the ways that we are responding to this with the Soy Transportation Coalition is we're going to continue to spend more and more time highlighting some of the innovative approaches that are out there related to repairing and replacing rural bridges. Uh, I don't think we have to assume that the cost of repairing a, and replacing a rural bridge needs to be constant. I think there's, there's innovative approaches to dramatically reduce the cost of some of this construction activity. And so that's something that we're going to continue to highlight this year. It doesn't make the problem go away with decrease in fuel tax revenue. But what it does do is it, it stretches the taxpayer dollar further. It's always a good day to promote that. It's going to be especially a good day to promote that during the times that we're in. Are we seeing any momentum on the federal level towards a comprehensive infrastructure package? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it always just seems to be on the on-deck circle, never goes to the batter's box. And, and I think there's a good chance that we'll see uh, at least a what's called a highway bill get passed this year and a Water Resources Development Act. I think that's, I think that's the minimum. We can expect something like that to occur. The question is, do we do something even more significant, more comprehensive? You know, the president has been saying those kind of things. Uh, members of uh, particularly the Democratic side have been expressing these the, that sentiment as well. So, again, I think at least there will be some minimum amount of work that actually gets done and passed this year. 
Um, you know, we clearly want something that's, that's you know, more comprehensive, um, and so we're going to continue to pursue that. Not only is there need for the infrastructure improvements, but there's a need for jobs right now. Does the unemployment situation maybe uh, help push us towards getting this thing passed? It, you know, there's certainly a job creation and job sustaining aspect when you construct things. Um, and so that's, you know, that's certainly part of why infrastructure investment is so compelling. But, you know, clearly what it also does is it makes business that occurs in the United States, whether manufacturing, agriculture, service industries, it makes it more competitive. It, it, it reduces the cost of doing business in the United States when you have a better capitalized, better maintained infrastructure. So we should be exploring every opportunity to make business more economical in the United States as we try to emerge from this crisis. Infrastructure is one of the best ways of, of making uh, business in the United States more competitive, more economical, better positioned to success in the future. We have heard, have been kind of misled in the past about shovel-ready projects, uh, but it would seem that this should be able to work out. The, I mean, the need is so great. Yeah, you know, and I, I, you clearly want to have a project that will be constructed sooner rather than later. I, I don't get so hung up on the shovel-ready aspect to it. Um, I, I just want projects that make sense, that pencil out where the benefits exceed the cost, that aren't, aren't wasteful, but that are going to provide a real positive ripple effect for industries moving forward. And so um, that's what I think the focus really needs to be on. And so I, I hope we, I hope whatever we do uh, we want it needs to be wise. It needs to be prudent. Um, we're, we we can't be just wasting money because that sets ourselves back. Um, and so, we really need to make sure that we're doing our due diligence. But hopefully, we actually can get something done this year. Yeah, and we'll see if they can come to some sort of an agreement. And then, even once they do, actually, as we see with a lot of government programs, passing something is one thing; implementing it's another. It is. And, and sometimes, you know, you know, government can be really good at, you know, doing something like, a, you know, creating an aspiration, but they're not so good at creating an outcome. And there's a big difference between the two. And so that's something that we need to remain engaged in and we need to really insist upon it. So just because some, some law gets passed, that's not the finish line. That's actually the starting line, getting the actual resources allocated, make sure the work is done appropriately, um, practicing good stewardship. That's... Um, that's really key as well. That's the finish line. All right, Mike, good to talk with you again. Thanks for the update. Thank you, Mike. Take care. Mike Steenhook, Executive Director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. Well, we're seeing some movement at USDA for some assistance. Um, we're getting some information on the infrastructure loan program, the grant program to help uh, get uh, higher ethanol blends out to the public. We'll get an update on that from Jeff Cooper, President and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association, and purchases of commodities, including potatoes. We'll talk about that with Cam Quarles, CEO of the National Potato Council, coming up next here on AOA. Farmers can't choose the weather, trade policy, or market prices. 
but they can choose the most advanced dicamba with confidence. Ingenia Herbicide has the lowest volatility of all dicamba salts for more successful on-target applications. And it's straight from the dicamba experts, BASF. So make the confident choice for your soybean crop. Talk to your BASF rep or authorized retailer. Ingenia Herbicide is a U.S. EPA restricted-use pesticide. Additional state restrictions may apply. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. All right, we're starting to get some movement from USDA on some assistance programs. Um, USDA announcing purchases of some excess commodities or commodities that aren't moving because of the supply chain interruptions. Well, potatoes, one of those commodities. We'll talk with the CEO of the National Potato Council here in just a bit. Uh, but first, we're going to start with uh, the biofuel side of things. While still not getting direct assistance that is needed, uh, there's at least some information on uh, a program to help build infrastructure for higher ethanol blends. And to talk about that, here's Jeff Cooper, president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. Jeff, thanks for joining us. Uh, I know you need more help, but this is at least a step in the right direction. Well, thanks for having me, Mike. And, and you're right, it, it is a step in the right direction. The industry certainly has more pressing needs in the immediate term than thinking about infrastructure. Uh, but it is good news, and, and, and we'll take any good news we can get right now. Um, this program was actually on the books and, and sort of planned before all the COVID-19 stuff happened. This was actually part of the the grand bargain, or, or whatever you want to call it, that President Trump uh, struck last fall. Uh, with uh, with a group of senators around steps to help the biofuels industry grow. So this is sort of the outgrowth of, of that deal that uh, uh, was struck last October, but it is great to see some details coming forward. Um, and, and we do think it's an important piece of the puzzle for the sort of longer-term recovery for the industry. Yeah, that's a long-term uh, remedy or help. I know the concern by those in the industry right now is to get through the short term to be able to take advantage of that long-term help. Yeah, that's exactly right, and and that's what we've been saying to our our friends uh, in the administration and in Congress is, um, hey, more blender pumps is great. Um, We absolutely need to get there, but if we don't have an industry around to supply the higher volumes of ethanol to those higher blends, um, then, then it's all for naught. So we, we do have some more immediate needs that we need to take care of uh, to keep the industry solvent, to keep the industry afloat uh, through this tremendous downturn that we're seeing in the marketplace. Uh, but certainly longer term, uh, part of that longer term recovery and, and growth strategy for the industry does absolutely involve um, infrastructure. So, so again, this is welcome news, and, and we certainly aren't one to, to look a gift horse in the mouth, but uh, – uh, we do have some, uh, the, you know, some some more immediate needs to take care of first. With much of your industry idled, what do you need right now as far as assistance to help the industry through this? Well, Mike, about half of the industry is is offline today. Um, as recently as the end of February, we were operating at an annualized rate of about sixteen and a half billion gallons of, of production. Last week, we were operating around 8.2 billion gallons of, of annualized production. So, you know, roughly half of the industry, slightly more than half of the industry is offline. Uh, our, our biggest need in the short term is retaining that workforce, uh, especially for those facilities that aren't operating today. 
Uh, they need to be able to keep those those highly trained, highly skilled workers um, on the payroll and, and covering their wages and benefits. Uh, we have seen some help in the form of the Paycheck Protection Program and some, some tax relief measures. Um, there's a Main Street lending program that came out from the Treasury Department. You know, none of those are specific to the ethanol industry or, or energy sector at all. These are, these are broad in scope, um, and, and many sectors of the economy are, are tapping into these programs. They are being helpful for, for our members. Um, but sort of in, in the, you know, the next step is, you know, what happens when, when the economy does turn a corner, uh, states are starting to open up again, uh, what happens when people get back on the roads and, and demand picks up? You know, we want our, our uh, industry to be in a position to react quickly to that. Um, obviously, our, our number one cost of, uh, you know, operating cost is, is the feedstock. And so we want to ensure that ethanol plants have the funding available, have the resources available to start buying corn and other inputs, um, you know, quickly uh, when, when this thing turns a corner. Uh, unfortunately, we've seen a lot of facilities have burned through their cash reserves, and so they're not in a position today to do that. That's where we could use some help from from USDA um, or other you know other federal resources. That's Jeff Cooper, president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. We'll come back to Jeff in a moment. I want to talk about uh, coming out of uh, this crisis as we start to see the economy slowly coming back. How he sees this playing out for the uh, biofuels industry. But we're joined now by Cam Quarles, CEO of the National Potato Council. Uh, USDA announcing it will buy $470 million in foods like milk, meat, and produce. And uh, certainly some of those purchases will be for uh, potatoes. And Cam, thank you for joining us. Uh, How significant is this announcement? How much will it help your industry? Well, Mike, it's a great down payment on what uh, what our industry needs. Um, you know, I, I, I think as, as we as we look at the overall allocations that were provided under that 470 million um, for specialty crops, potatoes were the single largest allocation at 50 million. It's one of the largest surplus commodities buys we've ever had in our history. Um, the challenge is the magnitude of this crisis is unlike anything we've ever faced before. So the need is substantially greater. Um, but it, 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 in the short term, having USDA come out and make this announcement, it gives some clarity on uh, where we're going to be uh, and what we need to do in going back to Congress and asking for uh, more relief funds. Again, as you and I have talked, the, the, big challenge that we have is when food service slammed shut, it caused this tremendous backup in the pipeline, both of fresh storage potatoes as well as processed products. Our, our big goal right now is to get that pipeline unclogged so we give growers some options for the 2020 crop. Yeah, it helps the producers, and it helps those that uh, are in need, the food insecure, uh, these products to help with food banks and other feeding programs. Now, I want to ask both of you this. As we start to see the economy in some parts of the country slowly reopening, how do you see this? Cam, we'll start with you for your industry. Uh, It looks like it's going to be a a slow reopening. How do you see this uh, working for the potato growers and, and, and rebuilding your markets, rebuilding demand? Yeah, it's one of the single biggest challenges that we're all trying to get our arms around with well over half of our industry is dependent on food service. 
the ability for those restaurants, hotels, uh, uh, tourism, uh, food, uh, schools uh, to stand up those institutional purchasing. Um, that's we're, we're gonna we're gonna ride right along with how well they're able to deal with these new requirements of of social distancing um, and uh, you know, all, all of the various kind of new normal that we're gonna we're gonna face. Uh, clearly. Um, the the potato growers right now um, they're under a tremendous challenge as you noted Mike we we've got you know huge you've seen a lot in the media we've got huge uh, uh, lines of automobiles for people uh, picking up uh, potatoes uh, food for the needy and we, we really want to see the that 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 steady uh, reopening of the economy so that Growers aren't faced with the this incredibly difficult position of of having to give away their product and being forced to the brink of bankruptcy in the process. That's really not a choice that any family farmer should have to face. And Jeff Cooper, there are signs of starting to get going. People kind of coming out in in certain places. Uh, even with the social distancing and everything, maybe, uh, and this is what you need, right? You need the driving to start back up again, right, to increase that demand for, for ethanol. That, that's right, Mike. That's really the only way out of this hole for the ethanol industry is for people to get back on the roads, start driving again, going back to work, uh, school taking, vacations. Um, but honestly, you know, I think anyone who is expecting things to just go back to the way they were kind of pre-COVID uh, in the fuel market is in for a big surprise. We we may never come back uh, to the sort of market uh, conditions that we've seen the last several years. Uh, you know, some people who are now working at home because of the, the coronavirus may never go back to an office building. Uh, there's a lot of talk about just less travel, uh, you know, moving forward. And, and so we need to be thinking about that. I would say one of the silver linings of this this whole pandemic for our industry has been a, a stark reminder that uh, ethanol plants aren't just ethanol plants. They're, they're biorefineries, and we make lots of other products uh, that are in high demand. Uh, distillers grains is, is one example, of course, the, the animal feed co-product, but we also make corn oil that's used as a biodiesel feedstock. It's also used as an animal feed ingredient. Um, we're making, you know, capturing CO2 that has broad applications in lots of industries. We've seen ethanol plants shift to producing alcohol for hand sanitizer during this crisis. So I think it has really reminded the industry uh, that to survive these sorts of uh, you know, crises, you need to think about diversification and, and what else you can make at these facilities. And we've seen some real ingenuity and creativity come out of this. And, and so I think that is you know, a silver lining that we've seen out of this whole thing and, and you know, something that I think uh, we'll continue to see as as we come out the other end of this crisis. Yeah, we talk a lot about the new normal. Maybe we should be saying the new realities that we're all going to be faced with and uh, dealing with those. I want to thank you both for being with us. Great information, good perspective and updates. Uh, Jeff Cooper, President and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. Cam Quarles, CEO of the National Potato Council. Thank you both. Stay well. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Mike. All right, up next, uh, we look at the... Uh, ever-evolving relationship between the U.S. and China. Some strains on it now with COVID-19. 
We're going to talk about Jake about that with Jake Parker. He's Senior Vice President of the U.S.-China Business Council. Where are we now as far as China honoring Phase 1? What are the prospects moving forward? We'll get an update next on AOA. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture, produced by the American Ag Network. For farm and ranch information you can depend on and the sources you can trust. Adams on Agriculture and the American Ag Network. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Always a lot of complexities in the U.S.-China relationship, and certainly now with COVID-19, concerns about future trade between the two, and will China live up to phase one of the trade deal? Let's talk about it with Jake Parker, Senior Vice President of the U.S.-China Business Council. Jake, good to talk with you again. Hope you are well. Thanks for joining us. Um, What impact is COVID-19 and the, the fallout from it having on the U.S.-China trading relationship. Well, I think the, the thanks so much for having me again, Mike. And uh, so we're seeing a couple of impacts from uh, the U.S.-China relationship as a result of COVID-19. I think the first is economic. Clearly, the closures of the U.S. market um, is leading some in the United States government and among the general populace to, to raise questions about the origin of the virus and uh, seek people to blame. Um, the economic repercussions are going to be worse in the, the weeks and months ahead. And so it's become less of a, an economic issue and much more of a political issue. We've already seen uh, the campaigns on both sides uh, try to lay blame on who's softer on China. And I think one of the potential implications we could be looking at in the medium and long term is that uh, China, which has never been a core political issue uh, of an American election campaign, it's always been on the fringe, but we could see China as the number one top issue uh, um, among the campaigns of the, in the future, and it's probably not going to be represented very positively. Um, so I, I think that's one of the biggest impacts we're seeing at the moment. And also the calls for, and I've been among them, uh, uh, to look closer at our dependency on China or any country for whether it be personal protection equipment or or medicines or things that we need and should we be bringing those jobs back to this country how will that narrative impact the relationship between the two countries well you're absolutely right i I was just on the phone with someone at the white house yesterday and and there was a discussion about these this focus on supply chain resiliency And, and there are certainly louder voices both in congress and in the white house talking about an over reliance on the china market and ensuring that the united states uh, does have uh, the ability to source products it needs in emergencies like we're seeing now. I, when I talk to our member companies, they kind of lay out uh, supply chains in three main ways. The, the first is they're beginning to feel a bit more pressure to reshore politically important goods. And some of the ones that are currently in the crosshairs are what, what are called active pharmaceutical ingredients, products that, that go into pharmaceutical production. The other, of course, is uh, personal protective equipment. I, I think another area is uh, one of the second areas our companies are telling us they want more redundancy in their supply chains. So we are beginning to see companies accelerate plans to regionalize supply chains to mitigate some of the supply chain concentration risks they've seen in the China market. And 
you know, this is already happening for the low-value goods, automotive, uh, electronics, textiles. It's going to begin to happen for sort of the medium-value um, goods. And then the last trend that we're seeing is preventing the single point of failure. Um, many of our companies are recognizing that, that some of their suppliers have gone out of business in China and in other markets for very critical but, but small parts of, of their manufacturing process. So they're, they're trying to guard against that risk going forward as well. We're talking with Jake Parker, Senior Vice President of the U.S.-China Business Council. Jake, do you think China will fulfill the Phase 1 trade deal with the United States? So based on our reading at the U.S.-China Business Council, China is largely uh, fulfilling its commitments on implementation of the Phase 1 agreement. It, It has missed one target so far, and that was delivering something called the IP Action Plan, which was related to some of the changes it would make domestically on intellectual property rights protection. Uh, And I know that some in the administration are very concerned about the progress made on the purchases piece of the phase one agreement. Uh, And while China is uh, constrained by an annual target for expanding trade with the United States, some are concerned that the purchases made to date are insufficient to show that China will meet those targets by year end. But of course, Mike, as you know, Uh, So much of those agricultural purchases, at least, will come in the second half of the year because of American growing seasons. So I think from our perspective, we want to make sure there's enough time for China to meet those commitments and continue to buy products. You know, a second dynamic that's important to note is that the the reduction in oil prices has made it much more difficult for China to meet its purchase targets because there's just a lot of less value in a shipment of LNG. Um, so we at the U.S.-China Business Council want to make sure we have time for China to implement and we're concerned about any kind of discussions about pulling out of the agreement or, or canceling it or bringing tariffs back into play. What about phase two? Where do those talks stand? Well... Uh, Phase two, very important to the business community, ensuring uh, data and ICT protections, cross-border data flow, uh, additional technology transfer, SOE reform. I think when we talked about the U.S. and Chinese negotiators, they tell us that they're really focused on ensuring phase one is implemented effectively. So both sides have the trust to believe that phase two negotiations can begin. Now, realistically, what that means is Uh, We're probably not going to see major breakthroughs in phase two, at least for the next six to eight months. Uh, But that doesn't mean that those issues won't come up uh, again uh, shortly thereafter as phase one is successful. should also point out the criticism of China over COVID-19 is not just coming from the U.S., right? China's dealing with some backlash around the world. Yes, that, that's absolutely right. And you know, there, there's aspects of it here where some substandard products have been shipped to Europe, uh, COVID-19 tests. Uh, we've seen some challenges with uh, defective PPE. Uh, th- these are challenges that China's facing and uh, internationally. But uh, they're also trying to – there's many in the Chinese government who see this as an inflection point for China to, to show that it can be a global leader and a global actor and can support other companies internationally as well. So I'd say each country perceives China a little bit differently in this crisis, and there's both positive and negative aspects. Jake, always appreciate your time and your perspective. Stay well, and thanks for being with us. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. T- take care. Jake Parker, Senior Vice President of the U.S.-China Business Council. Well, that wraps it up for today. So a lot going on. The USDA starting to come up with some more of these announcements on 
assistance programs and different things. We'll keep you up to date on that tomorrow. Also, the latest numbers from the uh, Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer, and we'll get a planning update tomorrow as well. So hope you'll join us. Stay well, stay safe. Thanks for being with us on AOA. AOA.